Today's guest is Calvin French-Owen, the CTO of Segment, a tool that companies use to aggregate their analytics into one place. As Segment has scaled, the company has had to restructure its entire technical architecture. Microservices, containers, Amazon Web Services, and DevOps are a few of the topics that Calvin and I explore in our conversation so this is a great episode for anyone who is trying to understand the relationship between those different topics that are so popular these days. Segment's product unifies analytics from different services and puts them into one centralized place. Full disclosure, Segment is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Um, for most of this episode, we don't even talk about the Segment product. We just talk about the back-end engineering behind the product. So hopefully I stayed away from anything that would lead to bias if you're a fan of Software Engineering Daily, we want to know how to improve. Please take five minutes to fill out our listener survey. There is a link to the survey in our newsletter and on our website. We would love to know what you think. We want to know what you want to hear more of and less of. We read all of the feedback that we get. So please fill out the survey. I couldn't find it would all really... the feedback. So Alexa just heard me for some reason. Uh, okay. Calvin French-Owen is the CTO at Segment, a tool for data collection, tracking, and analytics. Calvin, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hey, thanks for having me, Jeff. Absolutely. Great for you to be here. So uh, software products often want to do tracking and analytics of their customers. Why is this important? Yeah, well, I guess at a high level, it kind of tells you what exactly is important. Because um, otherwise, as an app developer, you're pretty much flying blind. Uh, so it's the kind of thing where imagine if you were running a store, you know kind of what people look at, where they get confused and what they want. Uh, but if you're an app developer, kind of without analytics, you really have no idea. Uh, you can kind of think of it as the accounting of the digital world almost. What are the different types of data that are useful for tracking customers? Uh, well, I can speak mostly to what we deal with, uh, which is basically the who, the what, and the where. You want to record who the user is, so information whether they're on a paid plan or not, what category of users they fall into, et cetera, um, what they're doing, so you know which features are most popular. Uh, and if it's a website or mobile app, you want to know which, great, which pages or screens they're looking at. And what are some different tools that are useful for putting data into uh, like analytics? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question, because there are pretty much a million tools out there, uh, depending on what you're trying to accomplish. But I can definitely talk about a few of my favorites here. Uh, if you're familiar with SQL, putting data into Redshift, which is Amazon's analytics database, is pretty much the de facto tool among startups. Um, it's so cheap for the amount of data that you want to shove in there. Uh, and you can basically ask any question that you want that pretty much everyone has started using it. Um, kind of on top of that, then internally, we use Mode super heavily at Segments, uh, which provides a nice dashboard and set of visualizations on top of any SQL database you might want to use. Um, for more high-level analytics, uh, I really like Amplitude and Mixpanel, where both provide a ton of functionality out of the box. Uh, and then as far as kind of financial metrics go, uh, we also use Bare Metrics really heavily internally um, on top of Stripe. 
I want to talk about your company segment because the software engineering problems around it are interesting and we can go into more granularity around this discussion of analytics and how to implement analytics as a software organization. Before we go into the lower level architectural and software concerns, let's talk about the product itself to get a high level perspective. So what is Segment? Sure. So Segment at its core is a single API to collect customer data and then fan it out into hundreds of other tools you might use. Uh, So a developer can integrate our libraries once, start tracking that data that they care about, and then change around where data is being sent on the fly and kind of analyze and collect it all in one place. Why is it so useful to have a single API to fan out into these different analytics processes? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's sort of the same as sort of the old joke in computer science where if, what do you do when you have a problem? Well, add a layer of abstraction. Um, in our case, basically we found we wanted to use a bunch of these different analytics tools, but for each one we had to kind of delve into the API and look at the different data formats um, and change around what actually our code, what data our code was sending. So for us, we decided, hey, we'll kind of write this layer of abstraction in the middle where we write the data tracking code once and decide what we want to send, and then we can change around the configuration on the fly. Um, It ends up saving a ton of time for developers involved. So if I'm a programmer and I want to write code for Segment to track my event and then be able to look at that event in Mixpanel or Google Analytics or any of these other analytics things, how does that unified API look to me as a programmer? Totally. It ends up being really simple. Um, first off, we have libraries in most of the popular languages. Um, everything from server-side languages like Ruby or Python, Go, uh, to client-side stuff in JavaScript, uh, to mobile as well. Um, first, you'll just initialize with your API key and then typically figure out kind of what events are important to you. And whenever an interesting event happens, whether that's adding a friend, playing a song, um, or even just logging in, you make a call to our library and then it'll send the data to our servers. The different products that Segment can fan out to and be integrated with, Segment integrates with like Google Analytics, Marquito, Mixpanel, Kissmetrics, Optimizely, and there's like tons of these analytics products. Why does a company need so many of these tools? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, And at the very beginning, I don't think we even realized how many tools were out there because there are literally thousands of different tools that deal with customer data in one respect or another. Um, And as it turns out, the tools you end up using do very different things. And as your business gets more specialized, you end up using more and more of them depending on who actually is using them. So marketing folks might use HubSpot or Customer.io for marketing automation and emails. Salespeople use Salesforce. Analysts use Tableau, Mode, or raw SQL queries. A PM might use Google Analytics or Mixpanel because it's very easy to get information quickly. Each tool kind of ends up being more differentiated by the workflow rather than the actual data being analyzed. Um, and as you can kind of see, like each of these tools do have very specialized functions depending on who is using it and what problem they want to solve, uh, which is what creates the market for them in the first place. But they all kind of want exactly the same data in them. Now that we've got a sufficient high-level explanation of the product, and it's clearly a complex product, uh, you know, it's just a developer abstraction for 
putting in the single analytics API and being able to interface with all of these other services. So let's let's talk about how that actually gets implemented at a lower level. And in that, we're going to be talking about microservices. And you wrote a blog post about microservices, which you began with the phrase, at Segment, we have fully embraced the idea of microservices, but not for the reasons that you might think. So why did you embrace microservices at Segment, and how does that differ differ from the typical uh, reasons why people adopt microservices? Yeah. So most of the time when people talk about the benefits of microservices, it's almost always as a function of the number of developers working on the project. Uh, so the conventional wisdom is that the more developers you have, the more need there is to actually have stricter APIs between different projects so that they can actually work together without stepping on one another's toes or getting all sorts of merge conflicts, that sort of thing. Um, and that's where microservice has really risen as kind of the standard solution so you can effectively shard your dev team between different projects. Um, kind of the other core one that people typically talk about is the ability to scale up individual pieces of your infrastructure where you might say, oh, if your database service is maxing out particular cycles, you don't have to scale up your whole app at that point. Instead, you just scale up the particular service, which is requiring more resources. Um, but kind of the major benefit that we get, which most people don't end up talking about, surrounds visibility, or some people refer to it as observability. Uh, our dev team is fairly small. Uh, we're, I think, 12 at the moment. And we've got a lot of code that we're supporting at this point as part of the whole product. Um, and the biggest benefit we found is that microservices make it really hard for problems to hide within a big code base. Uh, the services themselves are very small. They're, each one is maybe 100 lines, so it's very easy to figure out where bugs are happening and make sure that you have really good test coverage among those. Uh, and the metrics are easy to find uh, since every service is separated by well-defined APIs. So if you're making a call from one service to another, it's typically over HTTP. You're getting free metrics from whatever load balancer is behind it. It makes it really easy to figure out, oh, okay, this service is acting incorrectly for reasons X, Y, and Z. You emphasized the value of microservices providing visibility. Can you talk more about this visibility, why it's important, like how you actually achieve visibility? Yeah, totally. Uh, so visibility in itself is just figuring out what the service is doing at any given time. Is it working properly or is something going wrong? Uh, and typically what we do in order to achieve visibility um, in the past, what people have done is created all sorts of tools, mostly around process-level metrics. Uh, so there are things like, what is the CPU for the process at? What's the memory at? Uh, that sort of thing. But when you kind of dive in, those don't really give you a very fine-grained look at what your code is actually doing. Uh, so we use microservices as a way of sort of abstracting out parts of the program and giving a well-defined interface that you can actually monitor. Um, so in our case, between any two microservices, we can measure sort of HTTP uh, success results, errors, internal errors, latency, um, all sorts of metrics that if they're bundled into your core app would normally be totally hidden from view. You've written that, quote, the process-centric nature of monitoring tools makes it really difficult to get a sense of where a program is spending time. So explain why process-level monitoring and program-level monitoring are worth differentiating? Uh, yes. Uh, 
So I think that really goes back to sort of the core foundations of Unix uh, and most of the dev tools that are built around that. Uh, they're kind of all centered around the idea of processes and hosts, since that's pretty much the common Unix abstraction that has existed for decades. Uh, and so nearly every tool out there monitors stuff like CPU usage, memory, swap per process. Um, and since it's common abstraction, it's really easy to tell just for a given program, whether it's maxing out any of those dimensions. Um, but let's say you want to dig a level deeper, where you know that it's maxing out CPU, but then typically the question is, why? What's going on that's actually causing me to spend all these cycles? Um, and so if you want to dive into where a program is actually spending time, you typically have to go in a level deeper and figure out, okay, what system calls are, am I making? Uh, maybe am I making too many context switches, those sorts of things. But if your program is spending all of its time in user land where there's none of those metrics, you basically have to add those yourself. So you have to add some sort of tracing or flame graphs or some other sort of metrics like StatsD uh, to make sure you're recording kind of what's actually going on. So when somebody gets paged at 3 a.m., tell me about the debugging process for the type of microservices architecture. Like if you have a typical problem on segments architecture, what does that debugging process look like? Yeah. Um, so because we split everything into microservices, it's a lot easier than debugging any of our larger services because we can much more quickly kind of pinpoint what's exactly going on. Um, so supposing you get paged at 3 a.m., which happens to be a lot less than it used to, <laughs> um, you'll typically go in and look at the metrics for that service. And for most of them, they're sitting behind a queue. So we can first look at queue depth, which is typically the thing that raises the alert and figure out, okay, what's actually going on here. Um, we can look at, for the individual service, the responses that it's giving back, whether they're a majority of 200s, 400s, or 500s. And we can drill down into the metrics for each service. Um, typically, we have an individual dashboard per service, letting us know sort of general service health um, and whenever we add metrics uh, to that service, we'll also add them to the dashboard as well. So if you get woken up, you go to that dashboard, you look at it and figure out, okay, what's going on here? And typically one of those metrics will be spiking in one area or another. And then from the metric that's spiking, you can dig into the code and kind of figure out what's going on there. I'd love to get a picture that connects the introductory conversation we had to this conversation. Could you give me an example of a type of maybe a, just an anecdotal story of something that happened, uh, you know, in terms of like a customer uh, had something go wrong and you had to debug it like, um, you know, from, from the top level client view of, you know, the, trying to track something in their analytics, something went wrong and the service crashed or something. Um, and how you debugged it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so in our case, uh, when people send us data, they can choose which integrations they send them to. Um, and that makes for several sort of interesting uh, problems which we run into. One of them is that we have to deal with many of these external endpoints, which could go down, they could be slow, they could have any number of problems that happen to them. Um, and then the second is that the data that's going through us is super variable, um, where some people are kind of sending a steady stream of small events all the time. Other people are batching up their events into massive batches, and other people are just sending things like stack traces or like huge amounts of user data 
probably without really meaning to. Um, so keeping the service running with all of those constraints is very challenging. Uh, so to pick a particular example, um, I remember there's one time where we had a customer who would basically batch every Friday night at around like 9 or 10 p.m., um, which is typically the point where I was like ready to get off work and go enjoy my weekend. Um, but they would batch and they would batch with this really nested JSON, um, which ended up being a nightmare to parse. Um, because in Node, which we were using, where it's single-threaded and uh, just parsing the JSON continuously, it actually ends up blocking the event loop while it's sort of traversing all these files, parsing the JSON, um, in our case, cloning them so that a part of the program could run without affecting sort of the original JSON. Um, so we get these alerts that suddenly all of our workers would disconnect from their load balancers because they were no longer responding to health checks, uh, the CPU would spike to 100%, and eventually we realized that the event loop was getting totally blocked, um, where basically it was just sort of spiking the CPU in regards to um, working with this JSON. So kind of once we had uh, actual metrics into that and what was going on from there, we'd say, oh, okay, well, it looks like this is happening within the JSON because that was sort of split up into its own kind of tiny service that was going on, and we narrowed it down to that being the culprit. And then from there, we sort of reduced the amount that we were cloning. Um, we switched to Go for a lot of those things, which gave us better concurrency and made it so that we could actually kind of schedule these things without blocking the event loop. Um, those were kind of two sort of key aspects there that helped us fix the problem sort of in the more longer term. But... Uh, I'd say the biggest benefit of microservices for that is just the fact that it actually lets us see for a given program where it's spending time for the most part. And how would that have been different if you were working with a monolithic architecture? Yeah. Um, so you can actually see places on our, our, see parts of our infrastructure that are more monolithically based. Um, and those are basically the places which no one wants to touch. If there's a problem there, uh, there are places where everyone uh, kind of asked the question, well, what's going on? We're not sure. We now have to add some sort of tracing or metrics for it. Um, and so we're trying to break those apart as much as possible. Um, because if you're dealing with a 70 or 100 line microservice, it's very easy to kind of make changes or go in and pinpoint exactly where things are slowing down. Uh, but with the monolith, typically, there's a lot more code that you have to add. Um, because now, it, instead of having barriers that are separated across the network or are separated by clean APIs that you can monitor, uh, is basically just all internal program level uh, program level abstractions. So those are kind of by nature hard to monitor because they hide within your code. Segments architecture is unusual because instead of microservices coordinating together, you have micro workers could you differentiate these two concepts microservices and micro workers uh yeah I, I guess fundamentally they're pretty much the same thing uh but a segment we kind of think about workers as being programs that do some unit of work so say they read a message off of a queue and then process them uh, or they're in most cases making requests outbound to our partners for different integrations uh, we think of a service as being something which is actually responding to inbound requests. Uh, and since segment is mostly a fan out layer, uh, kind of once data hits our API, from that point forward, most of the work is being done by workers reading off queues. 
so it's fundamentally a bit of an easier problem to deal with. Okay, that makes sense. How do you determine when to write a brand new microservice versus adding new functionality to an old one? Uh, yeah, that's a very good question and a very tricky one, too. Uh, usually we write a new service whenever there's some sort of concern or piece of functionality that's fundamentally different. Uh, so if it's the kind of thing where uh, we realize we need some sort of new feature or a new piece of functionality that doesn't really fit into the other ones, then we say, okay, we'll actually build a new microservice for this. Um, and in general, I'd say we tend to err more on the side of more smaller services, almost to the point of being too many, uh, since it's typically easier to combine code than it is to split apart. Um, the only caveat here is that it only works if you have a good way of adding new services. Because uh, otherwise, the temptation to just shoehorn into something that's already existing, already has the proper deployment and CI setup, is really too high. Uh, so we've invested a lot of work there in actually making it easy to boot new services. Um, and we're hoping to actually open source a lot of that tooling kind of in the next two or three months. There's another blog post where you discussed the restructuring of your architecture. Tell me about the old architecture that you had at Segment and how you overhauled it. Uh, yeah, so to be honest, the old architecture was kind of a mess. Uh, there was... Uh, Originally, when we started out, uh, Ilya and I were pretty much responsible for working with the AWS infrastructure and uh, working to make sure that all of kind of our provisioning and instances were set up and everything was running smoothly. Um, and honestly, at the time, both of us were kind of straight out of college. We hadn't had any uh, experience running like a really big production website yet. Uh, so... I'd say we did a lot of sort of like cowboy ops work. Um, this was maybe like four years ago or something um, where we would basically uh, add instances via the AWS UI. Um, we didn't have any sort of configuration management going on. It wasn't very repeatable. Um, we had a few guides for booting new parts of the infrastructure, but for the most part, it was sort of all living in our heads. Um, and that's something that I think actually a lot of startups start out with, especially if uh, the founders are more product focused. But it's something that no one really talks about when kind of the switch has to come where you actually mature your infrastructure and say, OK, now everything is going to be properly managed and we're going to write everything down and we'll actually have a solid ops team dealing with this. Um, so we got away with that for probably far too long. And then kind of the point came where we said, OK, we're actually going to invest significant infrastructure and in overhauling this um, and making it really production ready so all of our customers can be very well assured and we can move much more quickly. How did you do an architectural rebuild while still running the business day to day? Yeah, um, so... In terms of how we spent resources on it, uh, that was primarily uh, it was sort of a skunkworks project done mostly by uh, two of the sort of DevOps leads on our team, Garrett and TJ. Um, and both of them sort of had this idea for switching out most of our production architecture and making it into something that was very repeatable. Um, and so they formed kind of a skunkworks team and were basically working on it, the two of them, for about like six to eight weeks, which was pretty incredible, the progress they made during that time. Um, as far as actually sort of 
serving requests in real time because obviously we can't tell our all of our customers stop sending all this analytics data while we switch you to a new data center. Um, for that, what we did is we actually booted up separate AWS accounts. So we said, okay, we're going to scrap everything in this current uh, account that we're using, and we're going to make an entirely new one, which is totally separate from everything we've got. There's going to be no notion of this old production account. And from there, what we did is we sort of gradually switched over the DNS entries once we felt assured that everything was working kind of internally for the outermost points. So that would be things like the site, the API, and the CDN. Um, and gra- gradually started ramping traffic there. The idea of the skunk works is really interesting to me, and this is a, deviating somewhat from uh, our conversation. But when should you know, we did a show recently about um, about Monsanto actually, and uh, Monsanto is you know this organization obviously much different than Segment. You know, it's like a hundred years old. Thousands of people work there, but. They recently had kind of a data science overhaul, and they were able to do it sort of because people in the organization were willing to do something of a skunkworks project that was disjoint from the rest of the organization. And then once they had something built and was sort of proven, uh, they could advertise it to the rest of the stakeholders in the organization and integrate it. So... Uh, speaking more broadly, when should organizations consider using the Skunk Works strategy to to build uh, new products? Boy, yeah, that's a very good question. It's one that we even still wrestle with internally. And, and, uh, and just to, just to say, like you, so you did the Skunk Works to to do the infrastructure rebuild when you had how many people? Uh, around that time, I'd say we had like forty people, maybe at the company, maybe closer to thirty. Uh, but definitely the dev team was still fairly small. Um, in that case, we knew it was a slightly riskier move to sort of add this extra investment for something which we weren't sure would have a significant payoff. Um, but at the time, we also felt like pretty good about uh, the steps we were taking such that it would actually speed up the rest of the dev team kind of going forward. Um, typically, the way I think about it is kind of how long will this actually make up for the time investment? Is it something that will make up for it over the next three months, the next six months, or the next year? Um, in that case, we could definitely bucket in somewhere in the next three to six months. Uh, so for that case, it made it well worth it to spend the eight weeks now to kind of fix these things up such that we can move a lot more quickly going forward. Uh, I think it definitely becomes more of an open question if it's something that doesn't pay off until possibly years down the road. Um, or is maybe a riskier move where it's not quite as in line with sort of existing stuff that you're building for customers. Um, but in a lot of cases, it can still pay off. I mean, like take AWS, for example. Uh, that was something which also, if I'm uh, sort of as familiar with it, I think it also began as kind of a Sunquirch project or initially was internal to Amazon and then they decided to productize it. Uh, and clearly it's paid off hugely for them. So. Okay, well, getting back to the discussion of the infrastructure rebuild, you used Docker and Amazon's ECS in this new architecture. Explain your usage of these and why Docker and the, I think that's the EC2 container service is ECS. Explain Mm -hmm. how the the containerization uh, technology set was so useful in the new architecture. Yeah, yeah. 
So I guess the biggest thing that's useful about Docker in particular is it really provides sort of a nice sandbox for the rest of the dev team to play in. Uh, since it's just a common runtime for basically everything, which is awesome. <laughs> uh, as an ops person, basically what you want to do is you want to be able to hand people um, kind of a sandbox or a set of APIs and say, hey, anything you do inside this, uh, totally fair game, go nuts. Um, and in particular for us, it's allowed the rest of the dev team to move much more quickly because they actually have the freedom and ability to kind of control their own destiny when it comes to how their code is run. Uh, so a good example of this is for a long time, um, we were running different node versions via Upstart. And Upstart was basically a simple program to uh, keep certain services up and running. Uh, but when we switched to Docker, uh, well, sorry. So initially with Upstart, we'd say, oh, OK, we want to use node 0.12 or node 4 or node 5. Uh, and that was largely fixed until a dev would have some reason to go upgrade it, and then they'd have to bother an ops person to actually upgrade the thing. Uh, then the ops person would have to make sure that the existing version of the code ran properly with that new version, and then they'd have to check that uh, this new version also ran properly. Uh, so it ended up being just kind of a massive headache in terms of coordinating all those pieces and making sure that a new version of the service got into production with sort of a new runtime environment. Uh, but then Docker came along and basically changed all of that by saying, hey, now you have an API to just run this unit of work, which is a container. Uh, what that looks like on the inside, really don't care. Uh, but it's up to you to make sure that it just runs. So things like node versions or extra flags for the program or basically anything to do with how it runs. Now, uh, as an ops team, we can say, hey, if it's in a container, we'll run it for you. Um, you just have to make sure that the container is properly built, which means that the higher levels up the dev team, uh, they can just focus on basically writing the software, making sure that it works with a given version, and then packaging up the container for it. So that's kind of the Docker piece. Uh, then how that fits into Amazon's container service, um, ECS uh, is basically, I guess, at a high level, a service designed to make sure that it will run your containers and it will also uh, kind of load balance and schedule between them. So let's say you have, in particular, a database service or an auth service that you want to run. You can say, hey, ECS, I want to run four copies of this auth service across these different machines. Uh, I want it to be behind this load balancer and I want to run this version of it. And ECS will take care of all of that for you, making sure that you don't have two of them on the same machine, that sort of thing. Um, and if any of the containers die, ECS will automatically boot them up on new machines. Um, so this has been really nice in terms of actually making sure that our deploys go uh, work properly. Before we had kind of a hacky in-house solution for actually deploying code um, where we copied binaries down from S3. Um, but now we're fully on ECS for actually deploying new code. So if we want to deploy a new version of the service, uh, Amazon will say, hey, I'm going to deregister your old instances from the load balancer and uh, boot new versions of the service up and do it in a, basically a blue-green way so that you can have 100% uptime without having to worry about downtime. Could you talk more about how containerization uh, and the containerization tools that you use help with dealing with failures and uh, catastrophes and just debugging in general? Yeah, totally. Uh, I think the biggest thing that we get from containers in particular is just isolation. Uh, 
whenever you provision a container, say, hey, ECS, I want to run with this version of the code, uh, you tell it not only what version of the image you want to be running, but also how much memory and CPU you want to give it. So you don't have to worry about kind of a rogue process uh, starving resources from others. And you can also be sure that if you told it, hey, I want to use this image or this container, that it will be exactly the same um, whether you're using that image in stage or production, which is actually what we do internally. Uh, so I'd say isolation is probably the biggest benefit that we get there um, in terms of kind of simplifying how things are run. Is there a comparison between uh, ECS and some other tool that would be useful to draw here? Like I, I'm, I, I've had trouble wrapping my mind around the different tools that ECS compares to. I think like Mesosphere is maybe is maybe one. Um, I'm not sure yeah. what other platforms there are available, but if you could give me some idea of the landscape of the container management ecosystem, that would be helpful. Yeah. So generally, this class of tools are all referred to as schedulers because the sort of the idea is that you have a big cluster of computers and you want to schedule tasks across them, um, in this case, containers. Um, and... I, I kind of tell other people about this that I feel like the way that uh, computers are generally headed is much more toward this idea where you just have a cloud of compute and you want to do some work on it. Uh, and so schedulers are a very natural fit there uh, where they can say, hey, like I have these 40 machines. I want to run this container on 35 of them. Where it is, I don't really care. Just put it on the machines that are doing the least amount of work right now. Um, and so these schedulers vary in complexity significantly uh, because it's not an easy problem to figure out where exactly you should add uh, containers to an instance because uh, you have to think about things not only like CPU and memory, uh, you also have to make sure that ports don't collide. You have to make sure that uh, your mountings are the right drives. You have a bunch of constraints basically uh, to where a new container should be placed. Um, so schedulers are designed to help with this problem. And they, I feel like there's sort of a joke in the distributed systems community right now that basically everyone is writing their own scheduler at this point. Uh, I know Docker has their own new one. Uh, the HashiCorp guys have their own new Nomad. Um, ECS is the Amazon one. Uh, Google uses Kubernetes to actually figure out uh, where containers should be placed. Uh CoreOS has their own as well. Kind of all of these companies are sort of doubling down on how to actually run these containers uh, so that if you have a bunch of instances, you don't have to worry about where the code is actually run. Are these schedulers differentiated to different domains where they're particularly good? Or is it more of like a vendor sort of thing where like, yeah, I'm on, e I'm on Amazon, so I'm just going to use ECS or I'm on... Um, uh, joint joints platform, so I'm going to use Core OS. Um, do, like, what are the upsides in that? Like, or, or, or like, I guess I'm trying to understand: is are these ske different schedulers useful because of the uh, because of the vendors, or because like they're particularly good for particular types of applications? Yeah, uh, I think it di differs a little bit depending on your workload. Uh, there certainly are some workloads. 
where you need like very custom sort of scheduling constraints. Um, and for that, they definitely differ a little bit. Um, like I would say ECS doesn't necessarily shine there in terms of actually being able to schedule your workload uh, in very custom ways where something like Kubernetes or Nomad actually provide you all of those knobs um, and uh, switches to be able to say, hey, I want this to be on a large instance and this to be on a small instance and kind of all of those sorts of configuration bits. Um, what I would say is I think you're right. Uh, I think a lot of the reason for people choosing particular schedulers right now actually has to do with the surrounding ecosystem. Uh, so everyone running on Google Compute Engine is probably going to pick Kubernetes just because the integration there is so good. Uh, since we're on AWS, uh, ECS was a really natural choice because it automatically integrates with all the rest of the Amazon EP APIs that we leverage pretty heavily, as well as the load balancers uh, for things like health checks. So, Talking about the other tools that you use at Segment, one tool that you describe is something called Terraform. What is Terraform? Yeah, uh, so Terraform is great. <laughs> Honestly, like one of the best tools that we've adopted uh, in the past six months. Um, what it does is it's a provisioning tool that allows you to describe uh, various parts of infrastructure. Um, and we use it primarily for AWS, but it actually has uh, what they call providers for many different services, DigitalOcean, uh, I think Linode, um, Google Compute, kind of any of these different tools. And it's sort of like JSON, or if you're familiar with CloudFormation, um, a way of actually describing this infrastructure. But what they also give you is ways of changing that infrastructure. So let's say you describe, hey, I want this load balancer, and I want it to have uh, like a 60-second timeout on requests, something like that. Um, you can provision that load balancer from the command line, and it'll boot it up, and it'll put it in your AWS account, and everything will be fine. And then when you say, oh, I actually want to lower this timeout to 30, or maybe I want to change the Cypher suite that's on it, or maybe I want to change which port it's listening on, you can do any of those things from Terraform. And instead of tearing down the entire load balancer, which it might do in some cases, depending on whether it needs to provision with those settings, it'll actually just update them inside AWS. Um, so it's a very cool tool in terms of being able to update parts of your infrastructure quickly without having to tear the whole thing down and basically boot up an entirely new environment. Uh, so that's primarily what we're using it for, basically just configuration management around changing these resources. Another tool that you discussed is Datadog. Uh, you discussed this in your post. And you use Datadog for metrics and monitoring. So uh, given that... Uh, I'm sure working at Segment, you're super familiar with all these different SaaS products that uh, are involved with anything to do with analytics and metrics. So what is so useful about Datadog, and how does it compare to other uh, analytics tools that are available in this space? Yeah, honestly, I'd say Datadog is probably the best tool that we've added in the past six months. Uh it just does such a good job around showing you different parts of your infrastructure and integrating with all of the services uh, that give you kind of the important metrics that you need to know. Um, so Datadog at a high level, we just use to figure out for a given service, what's going on with it, what's going on within our infrastructure, um, and where are problems occurring. 
and I think where they actually really nail it is in terms of their API, which allows you to make programmatic requests for basically anything, and their UI, um, which so makes it really, compared, really easy. Compared to something like Nagios. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... I haven't actually used Nagios myself, um, but from my understanding, it's sort of a similar sort of monitoring tool. Um, in the past, we used this tool, Stackdriver, um, which did similar sorts of things where it could collect metrics for you, integrate with AWS, um, kind of pull those into a feed and a set of dashboards for you to work with. Um, Datadog is kind of like all the other tools we've used, but on steroids, where they run an agent locally to actually collect a lot of those metrics. Um, the agent will collect uh, stats for you, anything you're sending via StatsD. Um, it integrates natively with AWS, so we automatically get updates whenever uh, we have changes to containers that are deployed or rescheduled. Um, yeah, it's overall just a very fantastic tool, and we've been super pleased with it. In your post about the infrastructure rebuild, you were very bullish on AWS and I think this is a, one of the interesting uh, stories in the software engineering world is like how the cloud ecosystem is evolving. So what do you like how big of a lock do you think AWS has on the cloud ecosystem? I mean we we just discussed, you know, people essentially choosing schedulers because of the vendor lock-in. If 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 that's the case then uh, then you know they're probably choosing other tools because of the vendor lock-in and certainly AWS has the largest uh, footprint of of uh, vendor choice. So, what is what is the future uh, of AWS? Yeah, I definitely think the lock in and sort of their control in the market right now is pretty significant. Uh, at least speaking internally, we've definitely built a ton of tooling around the AWS e- ecosystem itself. Uh, I'd say we use maybe a dozen to twenty of their different services, kind of in one aspect or another. And we make use of those APIs really heavily uh, for everything from our deployments uh, to a lot of sort of our internal services are using things like Dynamo or Elasticash, um, which are definitely just Amazon APIs. So they, they'd be tricky to move off of. Um, and I'd say, honestly, that comes from the fact that there aren't just that many good alternatives for kind of really custom deployments. Uh AWS does competes very well on price, and they compete very well on kind of flexibility for your infrastructure um, in a way that most of the other sort of cloud offerings don't well. Um, the fact that they just integrate everything works incredibly well. Uh, I'd say kind of where they do fail a little bit is in terms of both usability and marketing. Uh, because they have so many of these offerings out there, it's really tough to know what you should be using um, and what other things you can take advantage of and what even a very good cloud deployment looks like uh, because there's so many different ways you can go. Uh, I think sort of the other room for people to kind of move into to maybe take a little bit of AWS's market share just comes from around uh, actually running code. Because uh, I feel like there's sort of this uh, trend where in the super early days, um, you were sort of running things on maybe someone's local computer um, and like building programs that way. Then with the internet, you had these cloud services um, where you can now run stuff on particular instances. Um, and now you have kind of this compute 
um, sort of cluster where you're actually just running containers and you're saying, hey, I don't care really where this code runs, just like take my container and run it somewhere. And I think eventually uh, we'll actually get to that point with individual functions as well, where you say, like, I don't even care, like, what runtime this is in. I just have my function that I want to run, sort of like Lambda, um, or if you've been following any of uh, TJ's work with Apex, that sort of thing, where people just say, hey, like, I get some sort of trigger, I want to do something with it, and then kind of send it along and just charge me for whatever it costs to run that function. Uh, I think that's sort of where things will be headed. Fascinating. Um, so zooming out even further, so your work at Segment, you're you're closely engaged with all of these different paid software products. Like as we discussed at the beginning, it's like this analytics thing where you make a single API call and it fans out to all these different analytics products. So a discussion that comes up increasingly often on Software Engineering Daily is the build versus buy decision. And this has gotten so complex with so many products in the market. There's, uh, you know, it's not just like build versus buy anymore. It's like there's build versus buy versus buy versus buy versus buy. And there's so many different products that do the (laughs) same thing or do something similar. How should engineering teams and maybe data-driven marketing teams or data science teams that have this decision, this build versus buy decision, how should they assess what to do? Yeah, I'd say in every case, I just think of it mostly as sort of a time investment. Um, And this depends a lot on your business. If you are very capital strapped, then maybe it does make sense to build in some cases. Uh, But I'd say for most cases, like a business or for a business like ours anyway, uh, we kind of take a look at whatever we're evaluating buying and saying, okay, if we were to build this ourselves, like really factoring not only the cost of just running this thing and maintaining it, but also the cost of what does it take uh, in terms of engineering resources to actually build this thing? Because engineers are definitely not cheap. If you have uh, three engineers working on something for four months, that's like almost 100K right there. Um, so I'd say in every case, it's very important to figure out, oh, okay, what would I pay for this just in terms of engineering resources, but then also what would I pay to have this today? Um, at least where we're at com- currently as a business, it's most important to move quickly in terms of product. Uh, so for us, we're typically a lot more willing to buy things, uh, just so that we can focus on really our core product and making that the number one thing in the world. Um, I, I could see later on, um, you see this as a lot of big companies, as they reach a certain scale, it makes more sense for them to bring more and more things in-house um, as they kind of reach a greater degree of specialization. But I'd say, in especially in the early days, just focus on doing what you do best, which is probably your core product. Like, if you can monetize that well, it, it doesn't make sense to bring a lot of other things in-house unless you need something that's really custom or something that really won't take that much resources to build. Does it often come down to a decision of like, I mean, th- th- like I think with build versus buy, like a lot of times you can buy a product and it just has a fixed cost and it solves your problem and the fixed cost aspect of it makes it so much easier of a decision because if you decide to build it, that's a much more variable cost. Yes, totally. Okay, interesting. Um, although I suppose that yeah, sometimes that's the trap of AWS because then it ends up not being such a fixed cost. But uh, 
but it seems like usually it's it's worth it anyway. Or I don't know. Uh, it's a different conversation. So okay, yeah. <laughs> one one final uh, question or or um, to get to to close off like. So there's this narrative around, um, you know, Silicon Valley right now, the 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 bubble talk, um, and one of the one of the, you know, I, I think that obviously this is a conversation that has a lot of fluff, but it also has some substance. And one of the more substantial arguments, I think, is this anxiety around startups that are building products that sell only to other startups, and a lot of the examples that come up in this type of conversation are like analytics and data-driven marketing companies. And I personally don't see this as a huge concern, but this conversation does come up and I'm sure it's come up among people you've talked to. And many of the types of integrations that, that you do at segment are with these types of data-driven analytics tools. So are startups the only customers of this of these analytics products, and is this like a potential problem? I'd say definitely not the only customers of the analytics products. Uh, in general, we actually try. We, this came up during the last board meeting. We try and go for a good mix of customers, where we want a few kind of on the like really more stable end, but then we also want to try and capture a lot of startups as well. Because uh, they're the ones that ultimately will kind of be the big companies of tomorrow. Even if many of them fail, a lot of them are still going to succeed and make it really big. Um, I think it is a valid question, though, in terms of just your customer base. And I'd say for other startups, it's kind of worth like taking a hard look at your current customer base and figuring out which of those customers will actually be around tomorrow, uh, next year, next five years kind of thing. Um for us, I think we were actually fortunate that um, even though we went through YC, uh, we had about a year and a half of kind of pivots and weird sorts of failure before actually hitting on this idea. Um, so by the time we were actually launching it and acquiring customers, uh, they were largely outside of our personal networks or even kind of the startup network. Uh, and they're really just cutting edge analytics organizations who really saw that we could reduce a lot of the engineering time uh, for them and they could go back to focusing on their core product and uh, really leveraging what segment provides. Um, so that sort of sort of luckily worked in our favor, I'd say. Um, in general, I think there are a lot of these tools out there. I think the best tools, um, the ones that really focus on providing sort of a key piece of infrastructure well, like Customer.io, they're just all about sending emails, and that's all they do. Uh, and honestly, they're one of the best tools on the market for it, or something like Vero is similar. Um, I think they'll still end up eclipsing a lot of these uh, really big sort of amalgamations of different tools that you see, like uh, the Omnitures or the Eloquas um, or those sorts of things that are just trying to do everything well. Um, and we're hoping that by providing sort of the data streams to each of those tools, we make it so that if you're running a business, you can use a lot of those best in class tools rather than having to buy this multi-million dollar contract from a single sort of monolithic vendor. Calvin, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. This has been a super interesting conversation um, from the top end of the business to the uh, lower end of your infrastructure. So very interesting. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me.